listeners, and welcome to Pop Screen, part of the Geek Show Podcast Network. We are the Geek Show's podcast dedicated to the good, the bad, and the befuddling of films, either starring by or about pop stars. You know the podcast covers such a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from country and western to hip hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I'm a filmmaker, and I also write criticism for the Geek Show and Horrified.com, the British horror website. I've been joined this week by. Hello, I'm Mark Harrison. I'm a writer for Film Stories magazine, Fodzilla.co, and various other outlets, occasional quiz master as well. Yes, indeed. Yes, you do good quizzing. I do indeed. Cheers. How are you doing, Graham? Not bad. Uh, I'm particularly excited since this is the start of Pop Screen's first Oscar month. We are recording this before the nominations have announced, so this is maximum risk, but come on. What's the competition this year, if we're honest? We might as well go all out. I can't believe that today's film has 12 nominations. But, uh, <laughs> see how we, see how can't that believe it's out. beat Titanic. I can't believe they're putting this thing forward for <laughs> best animated short. <laughs> I think mean, it's got a good shot. Most of them uh, don't watch any of the nominees, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, we don't often cover big up-to-the-minute cinema releases on this show, but when we do, it's probably because one of the Oscar front runners this year stars Tom Waits and literally all of Heim. It can only be Paul Thomas Anderson's latest film, Licorice Pizza, which we have both seen on a big screen, a massive screen. Well, it was big-ish, I guess. Um, and yeah, we, we should probably just talk a bit about Paul Thomas Anderson before we start, because this is... There are other films he's done that qualify for pop screen. I would kind of like to do an episode on Inherent Vice with its amazing Joanna Newsom performance at some time. Uh, but I think we are probably alone in being the first white guys talk about movies podcast that hasn't gone on at great length about Paul Thomas Anderson yet. We're breaking new ground here, yeah. <laughs> so- <laughs> Um, so for me, like as far as um, I've, I've seen all of Paul Thomas Anderson's films, caused a few gaps during um, lockdown. Yeah, like went back to um, I think Hard Eight was the last one that I hadn't seen, so that was nice to, to catch up on. For me, it's um, my my main like I've kind of seen every one of them once, and it's a resolution to go back and revisit all of them this year, including Licorice Pizza. But for me. Um, me and my partner, it's been watching Phantom Thread. That's the film I've revisited the most because it's just turned out to be an unexpectedly great date movie because it's yes. a really <laughs> caustic romantic comedy, <laughs> which I delight in. Um, and it's one of them things we'll just quote back and forth with each other. So it's just one of those films that means a lot to us. <laughs> so long as you watch it after you've had dinner, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not a lot of um, turning around to each other going, are you a special agent sent to, you to <laughs> ruin my evening and quite possibly my entire life? No, it's mostly just sort of whispering sausages at each other and other breakfast order items. <laughs> <laughs> How about you and your relationship with Paul Thomas Anderson? 
I love the guy. I still haven't seen Hard Ace. I must get around to that at some point. But I remember when I was first properly getting into movies, that was when there was all sorts of buzz about this young American guy who'd done Boogie Nights and he'd done Magnolia. And there was this real feel of, you know, after you've done Magnolia, a film that is over three hours long and stars everyone, where do you go from there? And I remember that afterwards he was going around saying, I think probably the next thing I'm going to do uh, would be like a 90-minute Adam Sandler comedy. And I was like, <laughs> great joke, Paul. <laughs> He's funny as well. Uh, and then he did that. And I've, I've followed yeah. him ever <laughs> since. I know there are some people who think that the stuff he did in like immediately after There Will Be Blood is weaker than the rest of his canon those people i think are cowards um <laughs> i don't respect them i think the master is my favorite thing that he's ever done because it is so sprawling and so tonally all over the place and just it shows you that he gets great results from doing from actors from doing the thing that you're supposed to not do with actors which is just give them loads of leeway. Just let them do whatever shit they fancy, really. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, his Resident Evil films are a bit of a detour. <laughs> oh, hang on. I might, have, I might have the wrong tab open here. I might be looking at the wrong Paul Anderson. But, uh, <laughs> half, half. Um, yeah, he's, um, he's, it's a thing that I think comes to the fore, especially in, in Licorice Pizza, is, is, is a hangout, it's a hangout movie. Mm. You know, and it's um, it's got a very close relation to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, isn't it? It's in this both of these American directors making movies, sort of set in the time and place when they were growing up. But um, um, I, th I think with this, it's it's a matter of like you know when you read when you read about him talking about his screenwriting process and about his process of making films, mm. he doesn't write to a specific ending. He just sort of lets it unfold organically. And there's so many ways that shouldn't work. <laughs> yeah, I've seen some people argue that there are scenes and bits in this that could be cut out, but it's like it is. It's a it, it's it's a film that is just a hang. It's a hangout film. I can't think of a better way to say it than that without uh, sort of spoiling where I'm going to end up going with this. We've got a very on the nose comparison that we'll get to later on. <laughs> okay, right. Um, but yeah, it's like <laughs> it it is funny that I think people nowadays are very hung up on plot. I think it's a, a combination of like box set television and big like YouTube videos that analyze some blockbuster solely from a script writing perspective. And it's like, I can see how you'd analyze a blockbuster from that perspective because they are going for like classical three act setup, payoff, nothing too weird storytelling. But I do watch these videos and I end up wondering if they think cinema is just radio you know, if the writing is like the only thing that matters. And I do think that if you're making a film like this, which is, as you say, a hangout movie, it is meant to be about the the looseness and possibilities of being young. Um, maybe having everything marry up and maybe having no loose ends is actually a bad way to get that emotion across. Yeah, I mean, what I would say about this as much as it is a meand it seems like it's a meandering film. 
And mm. when you when you're in it, before you get to the ending, it can feel episodic. And what I think Anderson does so well though is when you do get to the end and it feels and it feels like everything that's gone up to it has fed into where it gets to now. And it's you know, all those um the, the screenwriting analysis YouTube videos never really go above the level of, you know, in quotes, lazy writing, um for something <laughs> they personally didn't like. This is lazy writing, capital L, capital W. And yes. in this in this case, you, you come out of a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson's films, and this one I think is, is no exception, with the, where the ending really just pulls it all together. It's, yeah. Um, and, you, and you know, with this one, you are watching two characters on a journey, if you like. You know, it's 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 you, you can chart them. You if you want to, um, you know, go with the screenwriting, you know, the bibles that they, these YouTube videos come to. You can absolutely project a three act structure onto uh, Licorice Pizza. I can tell you where the act breaks would be. Yeah. in this film once we get into more spoilery territory and stuff but it's 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 in there it's more successful i think than other films of this type that they go oh yeah i'm making a hangout movie i'm making like a dazed and confused or i'm trying to do uh what once upon a time in hollywood did and it comes out a lot less successful and i think it doesn't i think he's just got a style that you know that's so lived so lived in so baked in his characters that you can watch mm. these characters forever really i could have happily watched this film for an hour longer. That said, I do think it's a better film for not being an hour longer. Yeah, I think it's it's a brisk two and a quarter hours, which in Paul Thomas Anderson's terms, well, that is best animated short, isn't it? I was right. <laughs> Very yeah, animated, yes. <laughs> I I sort of it, it's one of the things you said there about the structuring of it. I do think that there is a great deal of writerly craft in here, and it's not the way that there, there is writerly craft in all of his films because he's very good at writing memorable character appropriate dialogue but um when you look at something like the scene where uh, gary gary valentine the protagonist of the film is taken away by the police and he's he's like grabbed really forcefully and bundled into the back of the car and there's these two terrifying lapd cops who tell him he's going into prison for murder and he gets yeah. there and they lead someone out to take a look at him. And the, the guy just goes, well, <laughs> that's not him. And there were loads yeah. of people who would like pick that up as, <laughs> as like an example of how baggy and how shapeless the film is. But when you look at that in context, Gary and Alana, his love interest, are very standoffish before that. And Alana thinks this this kid is a total loser. He's going nowhere. He's not someone who she would like to hang out with. And seeing him treated that roughly, she actually finds herself, despite her best judgments, going down to the police station and being very, very worried for him. So it gets the two characters. Yeah. The thing that the movie is, you know, about, it, it moves <laughs> their story on really an incredible amount and the fact that he's done that in a really sort of offbeat funny way is to me part of the charm but I think everything is so mechanically about plot in some people's heads that there really were some people going well what happened to the murder who did the murder and it's like it's not even slightly relevant it's not <laughs> knives out you know what are you want about <laughs> Look, I've seen the film, these people, like, if the, if the thing is, you know, if it doesn't matter to the plot, then take it out. Why did I just watch Amy Adams go to Superman's grave to a whole Nick Cave song? That's what I'm asking. So, you know, it's like in terms <laughs> of what passes for lazy writing, 
it's I'm not there's any credence to that. Then the police station scene though is the first, you know, and it's time the filmmaking as much as, as the plotting is it's one of the one of many scenes in the film where the two of them are magnetically drawn to each other. You'll see mm. you'll be shots of them running running across town. There's lots of running in this film, so yes. much running. It's an exhausting film to um, to watch in, in that regard. It's like, God, these kids are active. <laughs> but it's, they'll, they'll be, you know, like she'll be running from left to right, he'll be running from right to left. It's the, in opposite directions, but towards each other, always hmm. throughout the film. It, it's, it's, it's nice of doing that. In terms of, um, you know, the rightly craft, there's, you know, when we first see these two characters come together, um, it's his um, his yearbook photo day, which is one of the you know just passing incident that Anderson saw years ago while passing a school and thought like you know that was sort of an inspiration for the film. Like the very first thing she does is hold a mirror up to him. Like come on, you can't like it's <laughs> it's very nicely done. It's 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 not on the nose. It's 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 like that's how she's introduced him, and it's what her character then does throughout the film. Well, that's a visual thing, you see. If it's if it's not something yeah. that would be in a radio play, it's not screenwriting, according to certain right. people. And I, I do. I mean, I'm not going to spend. I'm not going to spend like this whole podcast slagging off people whose tastes differ from mine. But it is interesting when you look at some of the areas in which the film has been controversial, uh, particularly the scenes with John Michael Higgins who plays uh, owner of like a Japanese themed restaurant. And he has this like, it, we see him at several points in the film and he has like a different Japanese wife for each scene. But he, he considers himself an absolute connoisseur of Japanese culture. And he's like really patronizing and racist to his wives without having any awareness of why that is. And it strikes me that the editorial comment in those scenes comes when Anderson gives you a close-up of his first wife wincing as she listens to some of the Orientalist ad copy. It comes in the fact that Gary, who otherwise is just a background character in that first scene with Higgins, like it, it ends with him trying not to laugh at what a jackass this guy is being. And I think there were, there were some objections to that scene that I think would be like understandable you know I, I could understand if Asian viewers said look I don't want to hear someone do a comedy Japanesey voice it takes me back to being bullied at school that's fine but that's not the objection I'm seeing the objection I'm seeing is like I can't believe Paul Thomas Anderson thinks racism is good and okay actually and it's like come on man can you just not read a fucking scene can you not understand visual storytelling yeah. on any level well, that's it's inevitably just going to be a side effect of um, the the internet, you know, the discourse with capital D. That's just yeah. as it is. I think the, the the thing editorially that goes to it in that scene is that in a not very short space of time, um, the wife has got fed up with him and left him, and he's gone and married someone else who's only just getting used to how terrible he is. And of course, there is a punchline to you know the, the terrible way that he goes on, and it all feeds into the you know the theme of the film. Most of these characters are faking it till they make it. Yeah. It's about the artificiality of the business that, that they're in. And it's in there, and yes, if you cut it out, then it wouldn't change the plot much. But as I said, hangout movie. It's in there, it's like I get I completely get the perspective from where as you said, like it's not the objection that seems to be being raised as much no. that it's offensive. It's just that this doesn't serve the story. But enough of that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> enough of those people. Um yeah, I mean 
that that's in there from the from the very top that theme of like fake it, fake it till you make it it's the it's the thing that alana's doing all the way through it's the thing that gary the cooper hoffman with this incredible um confidence brings yeah. across but like for the that the whole of that early passage of the film to me is like it is it's just this weird the thing one of the big laughs in the film to me is when he goes to that audition uh where mm. maya rudolph is one of the the, the casting people and yeah. uh, the, the guy who's sort of like hyping him up between takes is kind of like, you've still got it, you've still got it. It's like, he is 15. He is a 15-year-old yeah. being told because he's a child star, you've still got it. You know, it's 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 a weird sort of spectacle that's just funny in itself of him preparing for an audition in like a waiting room full of nine-year-olds where this 15-year-old kid can already be past it because of the nature of the business that he's in. Yes. And so then yeah. the rest, yeah, it, it kind of grows out of that into the sort of like the side hustles that come up throughout the rest of the film that are partly kind of him trying to impress upon um Alana um that he is you know he's grown up yeah um, where all she's really doing by hanging out with him is trying to be a kid again <laughs> it's really it's, it's that backwards and forwards motion all the way through the film of like him trying to uh, fake being grown up and all the grown-ups trying to fake being kids yes absolutely and I think it was interesting. I read the interview with Anderson in the Guardian just before this came out, and he was he he was asked about that dynamic and why the age gap, which again some people have found very troubling, is is important to to the theme. And the interviewer put it to him that what you're looking at is really two styles of parenting that Gabby has grown up too fast. He's always been on film sets. He's always been around adults. We see his mum in a very brief scene, but we never see his dad. And indeed, his parents seem to just let him wander around and do everything. But then you have Alana, who lives with her family, and she's in her mid-20s, and her family are very protective and vet everyone who she brings back home. And she's, like, mocked by her sisters and... You know, this, the interviewer said, is it not the case that this is a clash between two different styles or even two different eras of parenting? But what was interesting to me about that is that Anderson's response was absolutely vehemently that he thinks kids are just not given the chance to have a child of these days, that we are too frightened to just let them wander and get in trouble and do their own thing. And he really ranted about that. And I, I, it's not that I think he's wrong, but I just think it's interesting and it's a mark of what a good and humane director he is that when you watch the film, you wouldn't necessarily think this is a guy who wants to have a rant about how modern parenting is too hands-on. It, it, you couldn't really get his position on that issue from the film because I think he he fundamentally likes to give every character their chance to speak and their chance to be understood. Yeah, it has all of that. Like that's all valuable like background to it. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, I do love that. Um, I mean, all of Heim are in this. I was going to say a lot yeah. of Heim's family are in this. It's just, just it's just Heim and and their parents. Um, well, that's a thing. That's the thing where uh, they're having a meal and they sing a Jewish prayer before <laughs> lunch, and I just thought, "Oh shit, the new Heim singles dropped." Um, no. um, I, I love the, the the way the family's introduced that when she's coming back from from either the first or second meeting with Gary. Yeah, um, and it's, it's that long shot from the the driveway, like the shouting match with her dad. 
Mm. Who I didn't, as I said, I didn't know until the end of the film that it was our actual dad, that the family are all playing the family. Yeah. Um, loved them in it because there's so much funny stuff in there. As you mentioned, that disastrous date where she kind of like she she goes with she goes with Gary to this um, this thing that like his confidence and say, "Will you chaperone me to this gig?" Yeah, in, in a way that he thinks will make him seem more adult because he's got this job. And the gig is that he's pillow fighting with a bunch of other younger children. Yeah, he's and at there's the reunion him and... for the he's at a reunion for a kind of cheaper yeah. by the dozen style movie that he was in as a child actor. And yeah, as you say, he's basically being beaten by the load of kids with pillows and trying to <laughs> sneak in uendos past his very angry adult co-star. Yeah. It's it's a, and it's the yeah it's it's a, and it's the thing of like from that meeting oh she re, she has the thing where she's sort of pointlessly telling people I'm his chaperone like mm. <laughs> chaperone like part to clarify part to impress it's, it's like it's as if anyone she's telling is going to be impressed but you know from that she winds up taking home and another one of the older lads mm. uh, from that thing played by Skylar Zondo who I've, I've seen a few films and oh, okay. has that kind of same man, man's head thing. That, um, <laughs> That Cooper Hoffman is trying to say in this, um, but the the thing of that of that scene of that family scene is that um, you know they have that sort of uh, awkward scene at the dinner table where the 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 young man tells them, "Oh, I'm I'm, I'm an atheist, I'm not Jewish," and they sort of storm outside. And apparently, as scripted, there was a different sort of um, angle to this. She was just fully mortified. Mm. Um, to which um, to which Alana Heim apparently said. Um, no, this would be different. And improvise the line. What does your penis look like? Yes. <laughs> so everything, everything that comes out with that, like I love everything that comes. Like all of that scene is improvised. But then um, the thing when she she runs back in and she's slagging off her sister's going, "You're always looking at me. You always think things you think." Of. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. incredible. <laughs> just an incredible insult. But it's she is phenomenal in this. She's really really good. It's like. An incredible. Are you, um, do you know much of the um, the history of like um, Anderson and the band? Because I was just reading a little White Lies interview with uh, Anderson and Alana Heim, and he said that you know part of the film came from when he did some music videos for them. He went through a phase of doing music videos for all his favorite bands. He did some for Radiohead. He did some for Heim. And he said, "Well, we didn't have any money, so I thought, all right, we'll just walk and run everywhere." You know, that's a quick and easy way to make things cinematic. And it turns out that Alina Heim is a pretty good runner. Um, but yeah, the other thing, which I think is what you were probably going to get to, is that was it uh, the, the mother of the Heim family taught Paul Thomas Anderson art at school? Yeah, she was his first grade art teacher and they had no <laughs> idea of this when he got into the band and sat talking to the band. And they knew because the mum apparently has said... You know, like I'm, I'm why he's artistic because I was his first grade <laughs> art teacher, which is incredible. Um, the, the thing that I read was um, an interview between uh, it was John C. Riley, who's another frequent collaborator of Anderson, interviewing um, Alana Heim, and he sort of says like for the readers who are wondering how Paul Thomas Anderson got that gig directing music videos, <laughs> behind, he knows their mom, he knows their mom. That's how he got that gig. <laughs> it's funny it's, that. Um, 
when I was like looking at the cast list when this was announced before it became a big thing, I was thinking, oh, that's that's there's quite a lot of nepotism in this film, isn't there? But of course, <laughs> it, it's natural for the film, and it's not like it's something Anderson makes a habit of. But he said, you know, I found making Phantom Thread very difficult. I'm in a different country. It's quite a dark story. You know, Daniel Day Lewis was was having trouble with it. Um, and I just wanted to do something that was like a friends and family project. And there are there are some wonderful cameos in here. There's um, a cameo as a waterbed salesman from George DiCaprio, who, as we know, is one of America's leading collectors of the uh, work of the symbolist sculptor Stanislav Solavsky. Uh, and also his kids been in some movies, I think. Yeah. Did you spot the John C. Ryder cameo? <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> it's just one of those things where you just pick out. It's almost like an audio. He is in shot, but you yeah. only know it because of his voice. He plays Fred Gwynn at a convention stand for the monsters. <laughs> yes, he is in full Herman Monster makeup. It's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> it's very nicely done. Um, yeah, um, on top of that, you know, you've got Cooper Hoffman, who is the son of the late great. Philip Seymour Hoffman, who is the other great discovery in this film. But yeah. but since this film came along, someone um, there's inevitably been um, the, <laughs> much to the dismay of, of film Twitter, someone went and found like a screen cap from the 2013 Oscars telecast, where it's like sort of the best supporting actress thing. And Amy Adams is there, and Philip Seymour Hoffman is sat behind with a tiny Cooper Hoffman from 10 years ago, and all of a sudden every minute of the last 10 years just hits you, and you realise it's <laughs> the same kid. <laughs> This is the same kid who's in that shot. It's like, bloody hell. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the family and friends thing definitely comes across, not least with casting all of, of, all mm. of Haim in it. Um, and I, like, I've watched some of the music videos that he did for, mm. um, for for the band as well before this. Some of them kind of just before he got going on Licorice Pizza, some of them a little bit um, for their previous album. It does, in a way, feel like a run, like a sort of dry run for this almost. There is running there's uh, yeah. going through the streets as, as you said there's there's plenty of that in there but um yeah when, when it comes to the film the family dynamic in it is spectacular and not knowing until the end credits that they were actual family obviously they knew the sisters were but didn't know the parents were as well but it's yeah it's um it's like it's as much a lead off into what follows as you know as you sort of like um as gary's early sort of audition tribulations mm. and then it comes to um the waterbed business. <laughs> I was not Which, expecting um, this film to have so much information about waterbed sales in early 70s California. It's a bit like the Hudsucker proxy, isn't it? It's the secret history <laughs> of a, a completely stupid and pointless invention. Yeah. Well, from the trailer, like looking up what licorice pizza means, it's like slang for a vinyl record. And looking at the trailer, I thought it was maybe going to be based around a record store or something. It's about an entirely different type of vinyl. <laughs> <laughs> yes. In the 70s. I mean, apparently the working title for this, there was it's one of the things where in the, the, the online news cycle now, I remember the first rumblings of this being Paul Thomas Anderson filming Mystery New Projects with uh, Bradley Cooper, Alana Heim, an unknown actor. That's little baby Cooper Hoffman. You respect his name. Anyway, um, apparently the working title of the film then was Soggy Bottom, yes. which is, you know, more apt maybe, but um, for various reasons, unusable. Mm. <laughs> As Alana says in the film, it sounds like someone shit his pants. It, it <laughs> so... made me think that maybe Paul Thomas Anderson is finally getting around to filming his stash of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou fan fiction. <laughs> it's, um, 
Yeah, so it's it kind of leads off into this sort of segue about um, the waterbed business <laughs> yeah. that they have, and, and this is this is um, because apparently um, a lot of the film was inspired by um, Anderson's friend Gary Gutzman, who's a movie producer now, but was a child star who, from the sounds of it, basically went through the same sort of post child star career as Gary Valentine did. He had a waterbed company. He delivered a waterbed to John Peters. He later had a pinball store. But I'm I'm just going to stumble over this John Peters. Think for now, I'm going to come back to this because Fair. John Peters in this film, Graham. <laughs> the movie <laughs> producer John Peters let, let has me, played. Let, let me just set this up because Goatsman's <laughs> precise, like the thing that he said that inspired Anderson to put Peters in the film is that he told Anderson, Oh, I delivered like furniture to John Peters' house once, and Anderson thought. Oh, Anyone who's lived in LA for any length of time, maybe you just prick up when you say this. Oh, wow, what's your crazy John Peters story? And he said, <laughs> oh, actually, wasn't one. He just, you know, behaved quite normally. Uh, so Anderson felt that, uh, as it is, that that was an imbalance in the fabric of the universe and has given him the craziest John Peters story in this movie. Yeah, it's like apparently, like the the real thing was just like he was just a nice guy and said, "Oh yeah, I'm going, guys. I'm going to the movies. Take your time." So, um, like, however, in this film, <laughs> in this film, well, he, um, the back important background. Anderson did secure John Peters' permission to caricature in this film um, mm. on one condition, apparently, which is that he wanted him to include a chat line that John Peters always uses in real life, and which what, is sure enough. What is it? Which it's sure. It's line um, at the, his very last appearance in the film when he says, uh, "Do you like? Do you want a peanut butter sandwich?" It's <laughs> apparently a line that works for him, and that was his condition to being in this movie. However, in being given license to caricature, the actor who got to play him was Bradley Cooper, who has just spent a fair amount of time over the last decade trying to make a Star Is Born, on which John Peters is the producer and stakeholder, and he plays Bradley Cooper plays John Peters. With the affection reserved for a mortal enemy, he's <laughs> 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 sort of like you'd best align him in like an Anderson snog for your best comparator, like Alpha Molina and Boogie Nights, maybe. Yes. He's, he's sort of like the, sh the shark from Jaws, to use an anachronism because it wasn't out at the time that the film is set, but it, ha it has that sort of the mania, all the stuff that Kevin Smith stories about making a Superman film, all of this stuff, like because Bradley Cooper has just come off working with him. And when asked about working with John Peters on A Star Is Born and how he was able to get A Star Is Born made, he simply answered, John wasn't there. Which yeah, goes to show we... the difficulty they had getting this film made with him as such a major stakeholder. You, you've briefly mentioned the Kevin Smith stories. I feel like we need to add some context of who John Peters is for the benefit of listeners who might not be aware of this, because he is... I mean, he is a behind-the-scenes figure in Hollywood. He's someone who people yeah. might not be familiar with, but when you read about him, you do think, how have you stayed behind the scenes? How is there an ego <laughs> this big that is happy not being on camera? Yeah, he's sort of um, in name-only credits on um, on Batman and Superman films since the Tim Burton 1989 one, where even on the set of that film, it's kind of... Uh, Maybe you're not allowed on set anymore. So basically, he's um, <laughs> as, as as detailed in the film, he's um, he was uh, Barbara Streisand, Barbara Streisand's uh, boyfriend, <laughs> who got into film producing um, that way. And um, 
just as sort of linking around, like, so for the, the background for the Kevin Smith thing is that Kevin Smith was tapped to write a Superman film. It's this incredible YouTube video where he goes into of a, of a sort of speaking engagement where he went in all of his interactions with this mad producer who said he can't wear the cape, he can't fly, he has to fight a giant spider at the end. Just this legendary figure who's become a pariah in Hollywood. So when it came to the making of A Star is Born, in which he would have been a producer, mm. um, Warner Brothers basically got the film made by figuring out a way to leave him off the credits, including all of the for your consideration <laughs> Oscars stuff. Um, but Bradley Cooper was, has, as director of this thing, had to wrangle him for a while. And like, so it can't feel like anything but cathartic that he's playing him as this maniac. <laughs> this film. Yes. Like, he, he has the, the, the thing I want to, as I say, if you haven't seen the YouTube thing, Kevin Smith, like go and look it up. But um, there's a line in that way. He says, you know, how, you know, I know we're going to make a great Superman movie. You and I, Kevin, because we're from the streets. And he has that line in this film, and I sort of want to stand up and cheer like it was a big fan service catchphrase. You and me were from the streets. So he's evidently said this to a lot of people. But then he, he, he but you know, other lines include, that's my nozzle, motherfucker. <laughs> I shit I think <laughs> if you love outrageous behind the scenes Hollywood stories, that we're from the streets moment is like. <laughs> Harrison Ford saying, Chewie, we're home in The Force Awakens, <laughs> what you've lived yeah. for all these years. My, I, I love the Kevin Smith stories. My other favourite John Peters story is one a lot of people don't know, when Paul Schrader was doing a lot of writer for hire work in the 90s before he did Affliction and that kind of revived his directorial career. But he ended up in Peters' orbit and Peters said, um, Paul, I've got a pitch for you. Gossy the John Gotti story. And of course, that's a great idea for a movie, as John Travolta will uh, will attest. <laughs> but he said, yeah, I've, I've, I've bought a book. I've bought a book. It's, I've got the rights to it. We can make it today. And uh, he gave Schrader it, and it was like a book by one of the FBI agents who'd caught Gotti. And it was just a load of details of wiretaps and sting operations and trying to get permits to do raids and things like that. And Schrader actually wrote this, and Peter's just hit the roof. He thought this could have been the next Godfather, and you've made it this boring, like federal <laughs> procedural thing. He just never read anything that he bought the rights to. Yeah, it's. I mean, as I say, with good reason. There's like, I, I you know, Christopher Nolan wouldn't put up with him on the set of those Dark Knight films either. He's for, with good reason, I think, a pariah at this point as far as the Hollywood studio mm. scene is concerned. But he, as I said, weaving through the end of this, even without the inside baseball stuff, Bradley Cooper is really good in this. He's really, really funny. He is good in this, and we should mention some of those star cameos because Anderson said, um, you know, they're not purposeless cameos. He said, anytime you think that the narrative needs a bit of a jolt or there isn't really a way for the characters to progress I just put a movie star in and it gives it a different kind of energy for a bit but there's some great ones there's one which ties into the reason why we are here today there is a great Tom Waits appearance in this film where he gets an entrance as like a disembodied gravelly voice from the back of a restaurant and he walks on camera with this halo of cigarette smoke around his head and I just saw it and I thought this is why I do pop screen this is like the ultimate <laughs> pop screen moment I love this 
It's an incredible. It's as if he's just sort of materialised from the smoke itself <laughs> before that was just voice and now has form. But yeah, he's he's, he's absolutely incredible. He plays a director, um, and Sean Penn plays the actor who he made a, a war film with many years before. And I mean, it's another one of those things that goes to the the trying to recapture youth on the mm, adult end of things. <laughs> how I don't want to say this cruelly because I, I do still have a lot of time for Sean Penn as an actor, and I think he's very good in this. Um, but how in on the joke do you think Sean Penn is here? Not at all. Sean Penn does not <laughs> get the joke. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm very here for slacking off Sean Penn. I have no patience for him to the point where I forgot he was in this until he was in it and then didn't mind him. So that's, I think, the sign of a good film because he does wind me up. I, but I don't, no, I don't think he's in on the joke. <laughs> well, he's been going around promoting this film that he directed with his daughter in. And every interview he does, I just think, you are Jack Holden. You are your character in Licorice Pizza. <laughs> Every single thing he has said on the Flag Day press tour could be a quote from his character in this movie. Yeah, it's it's big. Um, I mean, in this, it's more. It, it's, there's a more daring cinematic stunt, but it is big. Sort of like, do you think I could jump over that bin? And it's, <laughs> yes. But it's, he jumps over something else in this on a, on a motorbike, which is. Um, just a yes. lovely scene. It's but th- that whole yeah, Tom Waits is fantastic in it as well. It's it's. Mm. Uh, but again, it's like you could argue, oh, like again, the two main characters are se- still central in that. In that case, it's yeah. in a restaurant, and they're sat at different tables, and it's the energy of her turning up with this older man, and who's not really, you know, even her interactions with him provides a counterpoint to whatever it is she's got going with this, you know, this kid, this kindred spirit that she's yeah. she's found in in you know. It's it's all it does all um, serve to I mean, especially the way that scene ends. It's again, it's another one of those scenes with that, that magnetic pull. It's like his answer to the earlier on one, where she runs to him when he's in trouble, he runs to her. It yeah. all syncs up beautifully. No, it absolutely does. Uh, I just want to talk about that um, central relationship for a bit, largely because I'm interested in getting you cancelled. Um, no, that's not it at all. But um, it it. It has freaked some people out that, you know, this is a film where the 15-year-old boy has a crush on a 25-year-old woman, and the 25-year-old woman, though she is repelled by him for a bit, is a kid, is eventually kind of, uh, you know, I've had worse prospects. What, what do you think Alana's motivations in this are? What do you think she sees in Gary? I think there's an aspect, I mean, first of all, I think that, like, I understand completely why there's yeah. been concerns that it's 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 akin to grooming, and mm-hmm. that if the, the genders of the main characters were reversed, everyone would have a problem with this. I think that the film knows this. I don't think the representation is endorsement. It's the same way as, as John Michael Higgins' character mm-hmm. um, being mm-hmm. a terrible racist and doing a fake Japanese accent is you know is is not being endorsed i do think that it's in the i think that the film gives you a frame of reference early on you know as i say you've got you've got gary in a room full of nine-year-olds auditioning what to he's already passed it like to where in this industry that they're in the age gap it might as well be harold and maud and yeah. i think that the other <laughs> thing and i think that alongside that Compared to Anderson's other films, especially, and I, I use the word advisedly because I don't mean in an Amy Adams going to the memorial to our Nick Hall Nick Cave song, 
players kind of way. But it is compared to his other films, sexless. It's not. It's it, it's as I say, sexless with a you know an asterisk. It, there is. It does broach these topics. It's not but it owns it. It's not, I think we can say that for, with safety. Yeah, yes. it's it's definitely yeah. It's certainly not Boogie Nights. No, on a scale of Boogie Nights, it's the opposite. Yeah, <laughs> I think that I get completely where where people some people haven't born to it for this exact reason, but I don't think it's I don't think it's problematic. I think that it gets where I mean on one one thing on one hand, it's a ten, this people say it's a ten year age gap. One of the improvisations that's in the film. Is that Alana says she's twenty eight, then corrects herself twenty five. Now behind the scenes, it's because Bradley Cooper is Bradley Cooper in, in her face. This was her second day of filming, and <laughs> she just said her own age and then corrected herself. So it's just an improvised thing. But Anderson since said, yeah, it's in there. I think she's twenty eight, lying about her age because I think she is where she where she stands in that film is that she's unmoored. She's in her twenties, whether it's mid twenties or late twenties, and doesn't know where she's going. Like what what these two have together. It's not about, I mean, obviously from his end, he's projecting that confidence and he's like, I could get an older girlfriend if I want to in this kind of thing, yeah. but he is immature. She is, I think, heading back, trying to head back towards childhood. Anyway, I don't think there's anything predatory in it. She has her boundaries from the very beginning that she outlines and that he and his confidence is still going up against. And it's not. Yeah, I, I know that over the course of the film, it grows to what, again, it, it comes to what I said about the ending feeling, and it's about the depth, it's about the length and relation, like the depth of this relationship and friendship between them gets you to that point that you're at at the end. And I know yeah. it sounds like a lot of equivocation. It's like absolutely understand where anyone else is coming from if this is found it more upsetting. I think that. That ending is interesting. It's it's one of the few bits in the film that I'm not quite sure about, and I wonder if mm. against something to do with the cinematic grammar of it, the running, the voiceover, the cut to black, just makes it feel like a rom com when that isn't the film that Anderson is making. I think for all that it is a yeah. very funny film, we are meant to see something quite tragic in these characters that he's convinced that he's an adult already but his claim to adulthood is based on like a fading acting career and a waterbed sales sort of thing. <laughs> uh, so he is going to get the wind knocked out of him pretty soon. And she is someone who just can find no place in the adult world and is worried that she's missed a calling. You know, it goes back to that thing you were saying earlier that their imagined ages meet in the middle the ages they want to be and yeah. I think that is ultimately a very sad thing I think that it, it's it's not entirely strange that people think that a drama about a relationship is meant to depict a good relationship that unless it's something you know like nil by mouth or something where it's very <laughs> obviously meant to be abusive and horrible but I think you can like these characters and root for these characters and still think ah Jesus in years to come they are going to regret this so much <laughs> yeah it's not really this is why I think there isn't going to be a phantom thread too um, but <laughs> <laughs> But crucially, like I think this is again just by comparing and contrasting those other films, I think that film has a more unambiguously romantic ending than this does. Yeah. As you say, there's a tragic element to all of this that's foregrounded all the way through. Like the scene with, um, oh, the, I love the scene with um, Harriet Sansom Harris, where he's the oh, agent. I and love she, her. She's, it's, 
it, it's just it's almost claustrophobic like on her and then but it's Alana just going yep 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 to anything like can you ride a horse yep can you speak languages Spanish yeah <laughs> now having but, Samson you know, Harris was one of the standouts from Phantom Thread to me like as good as Daniel Day-Lewis and Leslie Manville and uh, Vicky Kreeps are in that movie. Yeah. There was a part of me that was coming out thinking, who plays that American woman? She is incredible. And she, yeah, you're right. She's great in this as well. Yeah. Graham, I'm a little bit ashamed to admit that. I only just discovered that it was her when I was researching for this, even though I've watched Phantom Thread a few times and yet thought she was brilliant. Yeah. Didn't know that was her. Um, <laughs> yeah, Rick clocked her immediately in this because she's an agent again. So it's like, it's sort of thinking kind of <laughs> Frasier where she's, where she's baby um, in Frasier. She is, her, isn't she? <laughs> well, hey, she's a chameleon is had, what we learned. <laughs> we both had our penny drop moment now. <laughs> Well, there we are. We're, we're learning a lot about Harriet Sansom Harris in this one all this podcast. Yeah, just to the point of um of you know, as I say, I think it's within a filmography. The reason why I'm I'm coming to it from that angle is because mm. there's a little bit of everything he's ever done in this. Like it's sort of set between Inherent Vice and Boogie Nights. It's got that sort of the same as William H Macy and Magnolia. It's got that child star anxiety, but you know from the end of very much younger actor yeah. you know it's, it's got that same jagged romantic or you know platonic and romantic interplay of um of phantom thread um like a, like there will be blood there's a bit of hassle about oil at one point yes. in the villain. and it's even got philip seymour hoffman's son, son going into like punch drunk love's family business of mattress salesman like it's just it's all in there and then just for good measure, you've got John C. Riley as Herman Munster. Lovely. <laughs> so, you know, it's, there's, a, there's a little bit of all of Anderson's filmography in this, and you know you can definitely see after Phantom Thread, he's kind of returned to home territory and making a friends and family film. Is this? But it, I think that's what makes it such a good counter to something like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, I think so. And there, there is that kind of trend of this happening. I mean, you could throw Roma uh, by Alfonso Cuaron into it as well. That, that seems to be the thing that you do when you've earned your spurs as a serious director is you do this very immersive recreation of the world of your childhood. And what I think is particularly interesting about this is that it's, it's not a purely innocent recreation of the 70s. You get Anderson's love for the 70s, not least on the soundtrack. But, you know, as you say, it unfolds against the backdrop of backdrop of the OPEC crisis. You, know, you see Richard Nixon on television. And there's lots of little grace notes as well, which I guess feeds back into what I was saying about the central relationship, where you know, without the film making heavy weather about it, but you know that Alana has been sexually harassed at a lot of their jobs. You know, she talks to a friend of hers who, and they joke about one guy they work for called the handyman because he used to ask all his female employees for hand jobs. And you think... Yeah, I can sort of see why having taken your first step out of this stifling household and gone into this world, you immediately just think, fuck it, I'm going back to childhood. Yeah. I mean, there's an immediate, con again, same as the her holding a mirror up to him, there's an immediate contrast, right, at the start yeah. of the film, where he's given a, he's given a ridiculous sort of a confident patter. That's like, you know, he says things like, there's too much reality in pictures now. And I've, I've always been a song and dance man. He is 15. I can't, he says, <laughs> but he's, it's the immediate contrast with the, the lachy photographer slapping it on the ass. Yeah. You know, it's it's kind of, 
it's 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 sad and it's ridiculous that she's getting this interest in her as a person from a 15 year old and all yeah. the other men in her life whether it's sean penn or whoever else are predatory but yeah it's um it, as you say it's, it's it's not it kind of doesn't glamorize the 70s i would say yeah it's not pure 70s it's nostalgia yeah piece. it's not yeah it's not i think that once upon a time in hollywood is a more romantic film than this is yeah in the most you know all of the most literal ways where it changes history at the end this yeah. is not sugar-coated i would say I suppose out of the three films we've mentioned in this trend, this is right at the middle. It is more romantic than Roma, if only because, you know, there isn't a fucking massacre at the end. Uh, but it is definitely not as starry-eyed as One Spot of Time in Hollywood is about the 60s. Yeah. I know we're recording this for the Oscar nominations, by the way, but while we're talking about the trend of Roma's, like mm. Belfast is pretty much going to do what Roma should have done, isn't it, really? <laughs> Think about it. Yeah, it wasn't made by Netflix, so it's probably going. I haven't seen yeah. it yet. It might actually be. It might be great. I'm looking forward to seeing it. But uh, yeah, I have if not we're seen gonna, it. If we're going to prognosticate. Yeah, if we're going to prognosticate about the Oscars. That's it, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'm. I'm still kind of catching up with some of the other Oscars stuff. I saw The Power of the Dog last night. Um, I've seen West Side Story. And I think those are the only films. Uh, it's not been a well-stocked Oscar cabinet this year, but yeah, yeah, I've seen what I want it's, to see mostly. Yeah, it's um, it's quite late to be asking, by the way. But did you see uh, Licorice Pizza on thirty-five uh, millimeter or digital? I saw it on digital. Uh, I I would yeah. have liked to see it on thirty-five millimeter, but um. It's quite hard for me to get up to Newcastle to our when you start house cinema and when I do it, I want to see something like Memoria, which I believe distribution is limited because the print self-destructs after each time <laughs> it's played. I might be making that up. It's something like that. <laughs> yeah, there's some good hype for that. Um, I didn't deliberately go see a 35mm, but it is one of those ones I think benefits in the same way as... Um, something like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood did again, yeah. didn't see it on purpose on film, but it, it worked out nicely. It's one of these things where it, the purity of you've got to shoot on film, it's like, my, I think now the bar for me is like, okay, have you got a really good reason for it though? Like, yeah, <laughs> it's period yeah. set film where it looks absolutely at home. Um, and it did. So just, just throwing that in as I mentioned at the end, just because we, we're, we're doing a two white guys podcast and we haven't mentioned whether we saw a 35mm <laughs> film or digital all the way through. How would yes. people know? We know of what we speak. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's very true. Uh, I think the, the one thread we've left unpulled that I, I want to, um, I suppose I don't have much to say about it, but I think it needs to be mentioned is Heim's music. Obviously, Paul Thomas Anderson's a fan. Um, what about yourself? Yeah, bits and bobs for me. Like I've, um, I've listened, gone back and listened to a lot of, there's some stuff that I'd heard and not realised was them. Like, yeah, um, same here. When I've gone back over and listened to um, the newest stuff, like this, when I was watching the videos, obviously heard as well. Yeah, generally, generally enjoy them. Um, maybe the best, maybe the thing that I remembered the most for on screen with them having a better time than any of us were watching it at the 2021 Brit Awards. That was <laughs> nice. They won best best international group, which is one of these things the Brits um, flings in there. I guess yeah. to, to draw draw a bigger guest list, you know, in between um, Jack Whitehall realizing that he can afford not to work and he hasn't enjoyed being dragged back out of mothballs after a year in lockdown and just reading terrible gags of an auto queue. It was nice to see Haim having a lovely time getting blasted. 
<laughs> I was get, I was getting blasted as well. I felt like we were all on the same team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I, I think for me, it's like a reflection of the way that my musical tastes have changed so much over the past few years, um, which is a key reason why I started this podcast. I want to investigate that more. Um, I, I used to dislike them because I thought they sounded too mainstream and then I avoided them because I thought they didn't sound mainstream enough for my new insanely sunny optimist tastes but I, I do keep hearing bits of um, bits of their work on the radio and thinking that's good and you're not listening to this because you are a stupid dickhead um, <laughs> but I, I greatly enjoy the song that they did with Taylor Swift on Evermore. And I think if you could travel back to like 2012, if you could go back 10 years and tell a younger Graham that one of his favorite songs of the year would be um, a Taylor Swift murder ballad with Haim as the backing band, I would think... I'd probably disbelieve you as soon as you said I came from the future, but as soon as you got to that bit, I'd be very sure you were lying. I was going to say, we all have these weird things, like if I could talk to myself 10 years ago, and if you don't tell you anything important <laughs> in the last 10 years, it's, it's always something like this. And it's like, yeah, oh, leave right, Brexit cool. as a surprise, but... <laughs> the things we leave as a surprise. No, um, in terms of what I've got, I've got, um, like, on regular... And regular rotation, I have like stuff like Falling and The Wire, like, like tracks that I like to go back to. I'm thinking when I add um, the steps to that after watching the Anderson video for it earlier on to one of the newer ones. But yeah, I'm um, big fan of Heim. Yeah, I'm I'm really enthusiastic to go back through their back catalogue and see what I've missed now because um, yeah, I, I do like those songs I've heard. I think The Wire was definitely one of them. And like you say, Alana is just so charming in this and. Apparently, part of the reason why Cooper Hoffman is is in it is because Anderson screen tested her across uh, alongside a lot of other like professional child stars who've been doing this for as long as Gabby had, um, yeah. and she said he she just makes them all look like they're doing theatre acting. You know, she's so natural that she makes everyone else look like a ham. Yeah, there's a there's a nice sort of untrained aspect to to their mm. acting. It's um like yeah, I've seen Anderson say that when he was writing the script, it was only about halfway through. But having you know known and met Cooper Hoffman, that he was kind of like popped into his head of like, oh maybe you should play him, and mm. then tried to dismiss it, but just sort of landed back upon it really. So and it, and it works. So it's like too incredible. Like when you look at some of the the f previous films he's made, he's had like Joaquin Phoenix headline, he's had Daniel Day Lewis headline, and it, it's nice to have two breakout stars at the front yeah. of this I think yeah. there is one thing that I read in that uh, in that little White Lies interview which I thought was just perfect for this podcast and maybe mm. we'll close on it but he was asked about 70s music and he said yeah, yeah. It's, it's not just nostalgic for me because people who weren't around in that time recognise that this is like an, an insanely deep bucket of great music that is almost inexhaustible that was released that decade. It's not like nobody ever thinks, Joni Mitchell, how did you get into that? And he said, he said, and I remember this quote distinctly, it's not like you're asking, how did you get into Square Pusher or something? And <laughs> I thought, Paul, if you're listening, 
come on pop screen that is the exact <laughs> pop screen way of making that observation <laughs> do flip pot <laughs> well if you enjoyed that, uh, you can donate to our Patreon and get a bonus episode every month. Our last one on uh, the Yoska has just gone out, and uh, we also give you exclusive access to our other movie podcast directors uncut and my Doctor Who reviews twice a week. But until then, uh, that's been your lot from Pop Screen from another week. I've been Graham. I've been Mark. And we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.